Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And thanks, as always, for tuning in. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for giving us the recording space and the equipment to make this podcast possible. We really appreciate that partnership. And be sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to us and like us and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. We're on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, all different kinds. Go find us. It uh, really helps us out and helps other people find this podcast. This week, we had Cincinnati City Councilman P.G. Sittenfeld. So what does PG stand for anyway? Well, it actually stands for Paul George, but here's a fun fact. His first name is actually Alexander. Alexander Paul George Sittenfeld. That is a fun fact. Now, PG, he's, uh, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of people who are listening to this probably know who he is, you know, big riser in the Democratic Party. At least he's sort of slated to be. Ran against Ted Strickland for Senate in 2016. I don't know, Mary, what did you think? I, I thought he was a really interesting guy. He's very energetic, to say the least. He's so genuinely interested in meeting people and getting to know people. You understand why he got into politics. Like, if you scroll through his social media, like, he just has this kind of joy about various interactions that he has with people across Cincinnati and like when you meet him he is like he's the nicest guy and just so happy and genuinely just excited um and I I think that's like kind of refreshing but so so why are you guys talking to a city Cincinnati councilman what's his uh, what's his angle I guess well again I mean he you know he didn't just run against Ted Strickland in 2016 and it's like that's the end of it I mean I think he's obviously being groomed for some maybe not groomed is the right word but people are paying attention to him the party elders are paying attention to him um I mean Mary asked him you know why he wasn't running this time around because it was frankly surprising. So so here's the deal about P.G. Sittenfeld, and I think this is why a lot of people are paying attention to him. He raised a ton of money for the Cincinnati Council race uh, that just happened in 2017, way more money than he would ever need to win a Cincinnati City Council race. He also got more votes than the mayor. He is definitely going places. P.G. Sittenfeld seems like he should be older. He has this aura of like politician or natural politician. He seems like he's been doing this for years and, and he has. But like when I say years, it seems like he's been doing this for decades. He's, he seems like somebody who have a pretty sharply honed dad joke at the ready. They're pretty good dad jokes. All right. With that, let's listen to the interview that Mary and I did with P.G. Sittenfeld. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you both for having me to a sunny, balmy Cleveland today for this conversation. I'm glad to be glad to be here. We are in Cleveland today, but you grew up in Cincinnati. Can you tell us about growing up there? What was it like? Well, so I kind of divide maybe this into two two half answers. Um, one, the Cincinnati piece, and the other, just like how I grew up. Um, you know, my parents moved to the city of Cincinnati, um, sort of sight unseen, as 23 year old newlyweds without any money, and sort of decided to build their life there for my three older sisters and ultimately me as well. And I think there was, you know, a certain innocence to my childhood. My mother was my teacher, the school that I attended she was my teacher in preschool. She was my librarian in middle school. She was my AP art history teacher in high school, which most people would be like, oh my God, that sounds like adolescent anguish, like not being able to get away from your mother. But my mom was my teacher. I played sports. I liked my classmates. You know, I ate a lot of iconic Skyline chili. It's sort of our, our signature food. So, and you know, I'd say Cincinnati is a very, not unlike Cleveland, but you know, it's a very Midwestern city. You know, some of the cliches, while maybe a little bit trite, they, you know, derive 
derived from being true in the first place. Like the people are friendly and neighborly. So, you know, not to say it wasn't a super eventful childhood. I mean, my parents definitely encouraged me to be very involved in things and sort of civically minded. But and then the Cincinnati piece. Yeah. I mean, as I said, you know, I, I the city's changed a lot over the years. It kind of a lot of people don't know this, although, again, so many similarities between Cleveland and Cincinnati. I feel like Cincinnati was Chicago before Chicago was Chicago. It was at a time, you know, the seventh or eighth biggest city in the country. It really was the trade gateway to the West. And, you know, over time, I think the then city fathers long, long before my time sort of made intentional decisions to put the brakes on certain things. And, you know, our Porkopolis industry moved to Chicago. We decided not to invest more in transit, things like that. So, you know, it was it was a happy upbringing. It's one I feel very lucky for. You know, it was it was stable. And, uh, you know, I think I've turned out okay. (laughs) (laughs) I would agree. So, you know, after growing up in Cincy, you attended Princeton and Oxford. What did you study? Did you always know you were interested in politics? Yeah, so I have always been interested in politics. And it's definitely something that we would talk about around the dinner table growing up, you know, local issues, national affairs in a normal way. My parents weren't like, you know, who got the, you know, 1924 Democratic nomination, PG, go. So it was just, an, or, 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 or if there was a Democratic nomination that year, uh, or organic uh, conversation. So I've always been interested in politics. When I got to Princeton, I was like, the, the logical thing to do would probably be to a uh, poli science major. And I walked into a poli sci class and I was like, this feels like it's a math class. Then I walked into an English class and I was like, they're talking about how to read people and how to read situations and what makes people tick. And I was like, this sort of studying of the human condition and like crawling inside people's brains, that to me feels actually like the greatest political education. And then I also, I think I sort of realized that, you know, if you were like everyone likes reading good books anyway, but if you're an English major, reading the reading the books that you might otherwise read for fun is actually your homework. So it kind of seemed like a good deal. So studied English at Princeton. My senior year at Princeton, I won a Marshall Scholarship. So this was uh, the UK's thank you gesture to the United States for the Marshall Plan for saving Europe after World War II. That you know forty talented, driven students from all across the United States would get to go to a British university of their choice to uh, continue their studies. So I actually studied American studies there, which might sound a little bit odd. Why'd you need to go to England to study American studies? But they obviously had a different perspective on things. And I still, this is kind of a joke, but not really. Their attitude uh, at at Oxford, where I uh, did that program was like, oh, how is the American experiment working out? Like we're still a Johnny come lately (laughs) country with the outcome to be determined, which these days there actually might be some truth to, but there was such a sense in Oxford of time stands still. And just one brief anecdote on that. I literally remember walking into a pub once. It's all you do in England is just go to pubs constantly. And the ceiling was incredibly low. Like, you know, I'm about 6'2", and I was really ducking down. And I was like, I, you know, I asked the one of the bartenders or something, like, what is with the ceiling here? And he was like, this pub is like 750 years old, and human beings were shorter back then. Like, literally, that's why the <laughs> ceiling was where it was. So it actually, you know, coming from such a sort of of like ancient academic environment. It was a pretty fascinating way to think about, you know, historical and contemporary American literature, history, culture, etc. So after uh, after you studied at Oxford, I understand you got a fellowship at Google. As a fellow English major, I really want to know, how do you get a fellowship <laughs> at Google as an English major? Yeah, so I think I'm probably one of the only people in the history of Google to take my computer to like the Google, this is back in 2008, to take my computer to the like help center there and be like, my computer is wrong. Like, well, actually, you need to press 
press the start button, sir, to, <laughs> and that will solve your problem. So I was on their uh, public policy and community affairs desk. So again, this is now a decade ago. Obviously, over time, Google has become, you know, a synod- a, a ubiquitous verb for everybody. At the time, certainly they were already a massive company, but their global footprint wasn't as big. So I would work on projects where I'd say, we're going to roll out new apps in countries that aren't familiar at all with Google. So help come up with some of the marketing collateral around that. But yeah, I wish, you know, when you when you started asking, you know, what I majored in, I was like, if I was smart, I would have, you know, be a brilliant computer programmer or I'd be fluent in Mandarin, but I know how to read a novel. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see where that gets me. Maybe politics is the best I could do. I understand. And, you know, after your fellowship at Google, you actually turned down a job there and moved back to Cincinnati. I did. Yeah. This is when people start to lose faith in me. Like this guy, <laughs> he's clearly has some loose screws because who turns down a job at Google? I mean, obviously you could have had a great career anywhere. Why come home to Cincinnati? What was the draw? Well, I did say to Google, and I actually had at the time some direct interaction with the then CEO, Eric Schmidt, who went on to be the chair of Alphabet. He was the CEO of the company at the time. But I did, you know, lightly suggest if you all want to open a Google office in Cincinnati, (laughs) I'm your guy. But I wanted to go home. I mean, I think for a lot of us, there's like a native love and affinity for our hometown, you know both with its merits and its blemishes. Um, but as also, I think as I was thinking about how can I, if I'm going to, and I wasn't thinking elected office necessarily at the time, but I was like, if I want to make an impact someplace, what better place to do that than sort of your native soil? It's just like, you know, driving by ball fields where you grew up and driving by the restaurants where you ate and driving by hard off neighborhoods and thinking, is there something I could do to lift that neighborhood up? It just feels that much more personal to do it in the place that you've known as home than to maybe do it elsewhere. So that was, I think, I think the two things that me back were one, you know, this is the draw of it being my hometown, but also Cincinnati. And I guess I don't have as much a feel for if Cleveland sort of functions in this way. Cincinnati is a place where if you as one person want to roll up your sleeves and dive into some issue and fix something, there's incredible ability to do that in a way that, you know, everyone says if you're in Manhattan, you know, you're one of 8 million people and probably true of places like Boston and your, your hometown of Houston and places like that. But, you know, if you email the CEO of a huge company in Cincinnati, say like, oh, I'd love to learn from you and get a cup of coffee, the answer is just as likely to be yes as it is no. So I think there's something about, you know, being involved is very rewarded there. And that was appealing too. You know, something that you said once that I thought was really interesting, you said there have been a lot of great opportunities. I've chosen to commit myself to community service. You know, obviously you could have pursued plenty of very successful careers in in the private sector or, you know, careers that don't necessarily... My wife would love that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, careers that don't necessarily make an impact on on people's lives. Plenty of people do it and and they enjoy it, but you decided to take a different path. And I'm just curious, what, what about that? Why? Yeah, I mean, I think public service probably drew me in for a handful of reasons. One, just at a personality level, you know, as the listeners of this podcast will probably get some sense, even if I weren't in politics, I'm a very gregarious person. Like I like interacting with people. I like meeting people. I like hearing their stories. So it just so happened that there is this realm of our society where that's so sort of part of like, you know, the muscle tissue of what what makes things go. Like in politics, you need to understand people. You need to get to know them. You need to appreciate what's making them tick, what they feel like their struggles are. So that's one piece. Uh, this will next part will sound a little bit sappy, but you know, I am one of those people that believes that if 
good people are in these seats in government, you can make extraordinary change for the positive. So, you know, I was uh, had just turned 27 years old when I won one of nine seats, uh, all citywide seats on the Cincinnati City Council. So as a 27-year-old, I'm helping oversee a 6,000-plus person workforce, a $1.5 billion budget, police community relations, job development, you know, environmental policy. I'm not sure how many other places when I, you know, things I could have pursued where I would be in a seat with that much responsibility that could positively impact people's lives. And then I think everybody sort of has come to Jesus moments too. I was giving some then council members in the city of Cincinnati a tour of a school-based health center in Cincinnati to help them appreciate the importance of a school-based nurse program. And they were all like, oh, this is warm and fuzzy and great. And then they went and turned around and voted against the program. And I thought to myself, I went to testify before council. It was the first thing I'd ever done like that. I was a private citizen. And as, it, during that moment of testimony, I think I thought to myself, I'm going to replace one of you in the next election. And I did. So there's there was... There there were individual propelling moments as well. So I want to touch on, uh, you know, we'll get to your career as a Cincinnati councilman, but I want to touch on what you do when you're not being a councilman. Um, I understand you work at a, a learning center in, yeah, in Cincinnati, yeah, yeah. and you're also involved in a, a tech company, yeah. which I read was the uh, an arm of Kroger. So what do you do when you're not being a councilman? Yeah, so I do try and have like a normal life and, you know, eat meals with my wife and go for walks in the park with our dog. But the two things you touched upon, what first brought me back to Cincinnati professionally was being a co-founder of this organization called the Community Learning Center Institute. The city of Cincinnati at the time uh, was already embarked on building literally a billion dollars worth of new school facilities. So the charge of the Community Learning Center Institute was to say, if you're creating a new uh, school in a given neighborhood, this is a 15 or $20 million investment. It has uh, meeting spaces and basketball courts and computer clusters and libraries. This shouldn't just be a 7.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. school day and then lock the door, turn out the lights, shoo the kids into the street. This should be a bustling neighborhood hub populated with community partnerships. So that's the work that I you know, was involved in starting nine years ago and remain involved with to this day. Uh, on the tech piece, so we were the entrepreneur in residence uh, company at 8451, which is one of the, data, it's the data science arm of Kroger, which is one of Cincinnati's flagship companies. And not to, not to dive too deeply into that, but you know, I really wanted to, you know, council in Cincinnati, I mean, there can be 100 hour weeks, there can be 40 hour weeks, but I like working. It's kind of what I do for fun. So I wanted to scratch the itch and sort of exercise the muscle around startup companies directly, you know, when everybody is playing the role from you're the custodian and you're the CEO and you're everything in between, um, you know, meeting payroll, trying to find the right product market fit for your company. So, you know, the the particular thing they service was a data project, was, was a, a data element, but I'm still involved with that. Like a lot of startups, there are periods of triumph and periods of hiccups. I'd say we're a little bit more in a period of hiccups right now, but you know, it's it was uh, something I've definitely enjoyed, sort of getting to round out experiences that I've had. So it sounds like you're pretty busy, right? I am very busy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm not. Um, I make no judgment on people that enjoy like going home and flipping on a game or you know checking it. But I work probably to a flaw. I, you know, it's it's I like diving into my day job. I like work diving into projects. So any discretionary time is usually the things I mentioned. My wife and I going out for meals and us, you know, uh, pampering our dog. You know, I, I'm curious too. I mean, given how much you have going on, I remember in. 
2016, a criticism that uh, your opponent, Ted Strickland, said was that you never held a full-time job. Was that criticism frustrating to you? Yeah, well, let me first say I have nothing but admiration for Ted Strickland. We've caught up after that Senate race. I did everything I could to be supportive and helpful of him in the general election. So there is nothing personal there. Yeah, I I absolutely would have disagreed with that assessment at the time of, you know, I actually think rather than not having a full-time job, you know, there have been times when I've had two and a half full-time jobs at the same time. So I didn't think it was a fair criticism, but I also understand that, um, you know, when you're in the thrust of a campaign, you're trying to create contrast with someone and you want that contrast to be flattering for you, unflattering for your opponent. As the governor probably knew at the time, he didn't even need to do that because he ended up whooping my behind in the primary anyway. So lessons learned. But yeah, I think that was absolutely not an accurate assessment. So before we move on to your political career, I would be remiss if I didn't mention your sister, Curtis Sittenfeld. Sure, yeah. As we sit here in this library. (laughs) As we sit here in the beautiful Cleveland Public Library, she is one of my favorite authors. Uh, I grew up with her, you know, when we said that we were going to have you on in the newsroom, everybody was like, oh my God, did you read Eligible? You're like, skip skip PG and get Curtis in that seat. (laughs) I know I was your second Sittenfeld you wanted. It's it's, it's okay. I'm not offended. You know, I'm curious she she's kind of a big deal what's it like to have a famous sister um, so just for, for folks who don't know, my sister, Curtis Sittenfeld, she's written uh, five books now. Actually, her sixth comes out next month. They've all been bestsellers to varying degrees. Her first book was the New York Times, said it was the 10 best books of the year. So she's she's had a good go of things. Um, I think there actually might be, just to give you, Mary, get something else to be excited. Reese Witherspoon and Kristen Wiig yeah, in the Re- next Re- book. Reese Witherspoon um, and with Kristen Wiig as the lead actress are going to be turning her next book into serialized content for, I believe, Apple TV. TV at this point. So, you know, I joke with Curtis that before she uh, was famous, I might, you know, stumble upon her reading Us Weekly, her hair really greasy, wearing sweatpants. And after she became a big deal, I would find her reading Us Weekly, her hair greasy, still wearing sweatpants. So, you know, when someone's your sister, their fame doesn't really change anything. I mean, there are a few quirky things with her where she'll get invited to a party that, like, you know, Tom Hanks and uh, Vanity Fair and you know whoever other famous people are like throwing in New York as some after party and she'll be like oh, I can't be bothered so she actually <laughs> does I know and I'm like uh, can I put on a wig and go in your place so she I think has actually been very kind of like she hasn't I think if she wanted to like take whatever level of fame is there and amplify it she probably could have but that's just not her personality and then there's also I mean funny stuff so she writes great books both that commercially do well but also literarily I think um, one would be proud of too. There are sometimes sex scenes and this just always cracks me up. As a family member, we, you know, she, like when she wrote this most recent book, it was set in Cincinnati. So she would ask me, PG, if uh, two 40-year-old single women want to do yoga and then get drinks afterwards, where would they do it? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> ask a 40-year-old woman who does yoga and then wants to get... So I would try and help her with bits and pieces here and there. But before the book actually comes out, she gives her family members, you know, uh, a galley copy or just like, you know, printing it off of the printer and sending it to us. And my mother who's like the most sweet, wholesome, wonderful woman in the world. My sister literally gives her a copy of the book where the sex scenes are redacted and blacked oh. out so as to protect her. So these are some of the things you endure when your sister is a you know fairly famous novelist. <laughs> But you can tell on Twitter, too. I mean, your your siblings interact. I, I know that you mentioned you have three sisters. It yeah, seems- we got to get the we got to get the third sister on Twitter. She's missing out. 
And by the way, she this the, the, so my other sister has been a very accomplished um, environmental advocate. She's on cable news and in the Washington Post all the time. The, the, and I've done uh, you know I've dove into a career where you know there you find I find myself in newspapers from time to time. My fourth sister is an incredibly talented photographer. She's the staff photographer by day at the Rhode Island School of Design. But one of her photography shows just got an incredibly glowing review in the New Yorker. So yeah, I, th- I still think of myself definitely as like the black sheep and the slacker sibling in the family so okay your family is very accomplished we, we, we got we, we got to get third sister they also all my sisters have weird androgynous names so their names are tiernan curtis and joe obviously joe is short for josephine but she goes by joe so everyone's also like what happened with the naming process in your family? Very, very strange. So. so what does PG stand for? I always make people guess if they ask me that. Parental guidance. Parental guidance, <laughs> yeah. I, I heard some of that when I was slogging my way through middle school. So um, middle names are Paul and George. Um, those are my father's names as well. You know, my parents grew up sort of during Beatlemania, so I'm sure that didn't hurt also. And then my first name is Alexander, but I've got my PG my entire life. Yeah. get capital letter it's the must-have daily read for state house happenings five mornings a week cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct timely information it's perfect for people businesses and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers the governor and all of state government from breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda if you're not getting capital letter you're missing out for more information visit cleveland.com slash capital letter That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. So PG probably gained the most fame when he, you know, ran against Ted Strickland in 2016. People were like, you know, who's this city councilman who thinks that he can take on the former governor and, you know, not many people jump from city council to Senate. I think he introduced himself to the state of Ohio at large with, with a big splash. And he created some traction, you know, in, in his Senate race. I mean, sure, Strickland beat him and beat him pretty decisively, but he did gain the endorsement of um, our publication, Cleveland.com. And, yeah, and I think it's less about him going in, probably think he's going to win, uh, but more about meeting people, building relationships, kind of like just getting dipping your toe in the water a little bit, right? He also triggered a very big debate in the Democratic Party of, you know, the Democratic Party endorsed Strickland and kind of told PG, hey, sit down, wait your turn. And now they've really, you know, kind of had to reevaluate themselves because they see, you know, Strickland got smoked in the general election. Now, PG probably would have lost in the general election, too, you know, but they have to reevaluate themselves and say, hey, what are we doing? We just keep putting retreads in and in and in. We're not grooming or anything like that. And I think... Oh, they I, I, they I, actually called him re, retread Ted. Yeah, that that was, in the... there was... There was a tie or two. But I think a lot of the sort of introspection that the Democratic Party is going through can really be point, you know, pointed to P.G. Sittenfeld. 
I think too, like PG's attitude is can do. I mean, when you when you talk to him about this 2016 race, what he said was, um, and he related it back to his races that that he won as a Cincinnati councilman. If you think that you can do the job better than the person sitting in that seat, why not run? Like PG Sittenfeld does not seem like the kind of guy who will sit back and wait his turn. He is a go-getter. He is somebody who has a lot of confidence, and, and I don't think that confidence is misplaced at all. With that, let's listen to more of the interview with P.G. Sittenfeld. So I want to move on to your career. So when you moved back to Cincinnati in 2011. 2009. So 2009. it was back in 2009 okay. and then dove into you know political pursuit in 2011. So why did you decide to run for Cincinnati Council? I think sort of as I alluded to earlier, there was, you know, love of my hometown, belief that my personality was a good fit. But I also looked around the city at, you know, neighborhoods that seemed like they were crumbling, a lack of collaboration and cooperation between city government and between the school system, which are separate entities in the city of Cincinnati. I was obviously already interested in tech and innovation and thinking that government had more of a role to play. So I think it's kind of, and I would say this to anyone who's listening and thinking, could I run for office? Should I run for office? Your litmus test should be, could I do a better job than one of the current officers? occupants of that seat. And obviously, if your answer to that is yes, you still need to figure out, can I run a successful campaign? Can I put the pieces together? But, you know, it's I think the idea of running for office seems intimidating for a lot of people. And if there's anything I can do, you know, as, as a 26-year-old kid, a lot of people would have said, you know, wait your turn. You're not ready to run a billion and a half dollar budget. I think six years later, I've been, you know, a pretty, I've been a very effective councilman for the city of Cincinnati. Don't disqualify yourself by thinking, you know, running for office is something that other people do. If you look and you feel dissatisfied with the current holder of a given seat, go and replace them. That was sort of my attitude. Well, absolutely. And it was an attitude that you showed in, in 2016 when you a little big. bit less successfully, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, um, I I did run for Senate in 2016, as you said, and I think two, I mean, there are so many sort of reflections I could offer on that race, but two, two assumptions that I made, one of which was correct and one of which was very incorrect. The correct assumption was that I think that, you know, we were in a moment in the country and probably remain in this moment in a lot of ways where something that felt new and fresh and different was, you know, would have been met receptively by the electorate. Um, I actually, you know, Donald Trump coming from a very different place, Bernie Sanders coming from a different place. I mean, candidates that were offering something that wasn't didn't feel like sort of more of the same and typical candidate and a, you know, urban minded sort of city focused 30 year old. That was certainly a different flavor. So I think that sort of thesis and assumption wasn't necessarily incorrect. The assumption I made wrong was that I could, you know, get enough name recognition to be known that that message had a chance to sort of resonate with people. And, you know, in terms of there's there's always humility um, that comes from any experience, but especially one where, you know, you get your butt kicked as I did. I think I was sort of had the belief that if you work as hard as you possibly can, like backbreakingly hard, you do everything you can that you can sort of through force of will yield a given outcome. And in a state of 11 and a half million people against a popular former governor, obviously you can't do that. So, you know, as we age, I think we gain more perspective and, you know, it's it's a, um, even though at some level it can be deflating, I think it's a healthy message to learn that just because you want to do something and just because you work as hard as you possibly can doesn't mean you get what you pursued. So... You've done a lot of things being young, you know, elected to city council while you were young, running for Senate while you were young. Do you ever feel in over your head 
I mean, I haven't. I mean, look, I I think the the my answer to that would be I have no desire, and I don't think anyone would to do something where I think I might be successful, but then fall on my face. You know, like who wants to set themselves up for failure? So no, I mean, my my first, and there are a ton of things. You know, my wife is a, a cancer doctor. You know, I wouldn't be. Would I like to be a cancer doctor, an oncologist? Sure, that sounds great, but I I'm not smart enough to do that. My skill set doesn't lend itself to that. So you know, I mean, there are a lot of things that I think sound great that I wouldn't pursue because I wouldn't be good at. It. I'm not up to the task, but the things that I do choose to take on, no, I usually believe it's because I'm, I'm qualified and have something to offer. What challenges do you think you faced in 2016 running for Senate? I mean, look, no question. I was a popular and well-known in one city. And this is obviously a massive state with a lot of different priorities. I will say I'm really proud of the race we ran. I mean, you know, I got the the endorsement of the Plain Dealer and slash Cleveland.com and a lot of other newspapers across the state. This is more on the fun side of things. But Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill endorsed me in that race. We before, you know, and I'm so admiring of the students from Parkland and everyone else. You know, I'd say at a time when raising your voice in support of gun reform wasn't as popular. We really leaned into that to try and shape the cut. Co- Look, no matter what was going to happen to my candidacy, to put that issue front and center. But, you know, the challenges were I started out with not very much name ID, and it's hard to get name ID in this massive state. But that doesn't make me any less proud of the campaign that I ran. I also understand you were planning a wedding while you were running for Senate. <laughs> I know. I have to check and see if my wife actually voted for me because <laughs> she might have been like, actually, PG, um, it would be nicer to have this wedding if you are not in the throes of a general election United States Senate <laughs> campaign. So my, um, I have. Well, she, she was dumping oppo on you. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Feed, feeding all the opposition research to the opponents. No, my, my wife is uh, a wonderful human being um, and I'm admiring of her in, in many different ways. Yeah, we, I, I think my main task for the wedding was she was like PG I need you to be there on June the 4th to show up and I wasn't like you know do you like these flowers better or do you like this tablecloth better I mean that's that's kind of not where my interest is and not something I have a very good sensibility around so my wife executed I showed up and we are here we are almost two years later still very happily married that's great. You know, I'm I'm curious too, you know, I know that you said that you've spoken to Governor Strickland since your race and are friendly with him. Some criticized you in the Democratic Party for even making a go at it, challenging Strickland. Was that difficult, you know, uncomfortable with some, some folks in the Democratic Party here in Ohio? Yeah, of course, because uh, first of all, you know, I have been very, I'm, I'm a collaborative, peace-loving person. So, you know, fences have been mended, including with, I think, some of the people that were frustrated with the mere decision that I would decide to, to pursue that race. You know, I'm a, um, no party is perfect, but I've chosen to be a Democrat and I'm a proud Democrat and I'm proud of my, my Democratic values. So having certain people who had, you know, historically been close allies feel frustrated with me just for going for it. But I also, I mean, I guess there was, there kind of higher callings there. One was my belief that I had a lot to offer as a candidate. There were specific issues, especially around elevating the conversation around gun reform that I thought were important. But, you know, the only living two-term Democratic governor uh, currently in the world, Dick Celeste, endorsed my candidacy. I mean, what a huge thing. And one of the things that I sort of referenced over time was that I do believe that the Democratic Party should never be afraid of the Democratic process, right? Like, let's let the voters decide. Let's sharpen each other. Let's 
make sure we stay focused on the substance of the issues. So that's another reason why I just I, I wouldn't have shied away from, you know, the fact that this is we are blessed to live in a country where we get to have primaries and then we get to have general elections and the voters get to make these decisions. So, yeah, no, I I uncomfortable slightly, but nothing that hasn't been pretty quickly mended afterwards. So looking back on it, was it the right decision to run? Was it a positive experience for you? Look, I mean, I think I I, I would never want to pursue something where I didn't, I could, I I would only want to pursue something where I, I believed I had a chance of being successful. So if there was some world in which you could come to me and say, PG, we have a crystal ball and we, you know, we can prove to you that there's not a chance of success. You know, that's the only way in which I would have thought, but that, that scenario isn't there. And look, a quarter of a million people across the state voted for me. I wish it had been a couple million more, but um, you know, I was proud of the people that I connected with. It was a huge growing experience. So no, I definitely don't have any regrets. You know, as with anyone that pursues any project or any initiative in their life, you pursue it because you want to be successful in the outcome. So you know, my regret was that I, I didn't perform better. Well, you certainly weren't the only Democrat who uh, who lost in 2016. Yeah, look, it ended. I mean, I, I said, you know, I made one right assumption and then one wrong assumption. Obviously, I think a lot of us made wrong assumptions thinking that, you know, 2016, especially by the time Donald Trump was the nominee, was going to be a good year for Democrats. And obviously, it turned out to be a historically terrible year for Democrats. Do you think there was any hubris on the part of the party to um, sort of shore up who the nominee was going to be before the primary was even over? Look, I, I, I guess at the time... I said I disagreed with, you know, I think empowering the people to make the decision is always a good place for the Democratic Party to be. You can just never go wrong saying we trust the voters. We believe in the voters. We're going to let the voters decide. And after the voters decided, the first person I called on election night was Ted Strickland to say, I'm at your service. How can I help you? The voters have decided. So I just think I think and this is true of parties or institutions, making sure that they're not sort of stepping on the feet of the grassroots, because if you lose your grassroots, that that really that's the source of anyone's power and anyone's sort of motivating energy. Are they getting it right this time around? I mean, they seem to be taking that extra step, like always saying, no, we're, we're staying out of it this time. Like, we're not yeah, endorsing, look, I, here are these debates, here's everything, we're not touching it, you guys pick. You, 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 th- there, this probably isn't in like a Wikipedia page, but I've known David Pepper since I was in high school. I, inter- I interned for him in high school. David is a personal friend. Obviously, our professional lives have overlapped. So look, I, I think not that the way they're handling things now is completely in response to what happened in my race. But I think, you know, there is an emerging consensus that let's not sort of um, let's not run over the voters who at the end of the day, we want them to feel as empowered as possible. And my attitude. So, again, David is a friend and I think he's right to keep processes as open as possible in this. But I think, you know, at their best, primaries motivate, energize and bring more people into the tent and the Democratic Party needs more people into the tent. We need more people who feel like we're following the issues, we're following the candidates. You've given us something that makes us want to turn out to the polls in a primary and then again in a general election. You know, there have been a lot of postmortems on what Democrats could have done or should have done in 2016 to connect with voters across the country, but specifically in Ohio. You know, Trump Where won the margin was, you know, huge. Eight, yeah, nine yeah. points. It was a huge margin. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, what or why Democrats couldn't connect with Ohioans that year? Yeah, um, I, I do. I mean, I'm always want to sort of 
be part of those offering the caveat that millions more people across the country went to the polls and voted for a Democratic vision of the future than voted for a Republican vision of the future. I understand and appreciate that we have an electoral college, but I do think it's important to say, oh my God, there was a you know wholesale rejection of the Democratic Party's platform because that's just not true by the popular vote. That being said, yeah, I do think there's a big thing and this thought is not unique to me, but I think, you know, and I'm pretty progressive on you know most issues, especially social issues. I think there are messages where you can go and you can say, okay, I'm going to offer this message to this demographic and a different message to this demographic and a different message to this demographic and kind of try and stitch together a coalition. But I do think a, a robust and sort of populist oriented economic message about how we're going to build an inclusive economy that lifts everyone up, doesn't just do well for those at the top. That's a message that appeals equally to a single African-American mother in the city of Cincinnati and a middle-aged white gun-owning guy in rural Ohio. More money in my pocket, more opportunity for my children, a chance to scale up to continue my education. So I guess I don't see why as Democrats we wouldn't lead with the universal message and then round out with some of those messages that might appeal to other subgroups rather than getting that equation inverted. It doesn't mean you in any way stifle or smother a you know core-held conviction, right? I am proudly support women's right to make their own health choices. I proudly support, um, you know, LGBT equality. I am have obviously been very vocal and very passionate about um, the need for gun reform. But those things can uh, be layered on top of a foundational message about economic fairness rather than being like, oh, and by the way, we care about the economy, too. I think that's kind of the equation that was gotten wrong. So before we leave 2016, I think the big conclusion... Oh, please, let us leave 2016, Mary. It's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get, get me out of here. So I, I think, you know, the big conclusion out of that year, for you at least, uh, people started calling you a rising star, you know, somebody to watch, uh, a democratic guy that you need to know, the future of the party. What do you make of that? I mean, you try not to get too... It's obviously, it's nice when, you know... If people say you're a rising star, you're one of the people that can be part of the future of the party, um, you know, you thank them for the compliment. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you also don't want to get too caught up in that. I mean, I have uh, the day, the other thing, if the night of the primary, I called Ted Strickland and said, I'm at your service. Let me know what I can do to help you win alongside helping Hillary Clinton try and win. Um, you know, I also returned to work the next day. Not that I had stopped doing it, but, you know, there are potholes to fix. There are economic development deals. There are police worn body cameras that need to be put on our cop. So um, I don't know. I mean, I just I always think one of the things people get wrong politically is that if you, you know, angle from this direction and angle from that direction and sort of politicize from this direction, it can help you politically. And the truth is that doing your job really well is actually the greatest political favor you can do yourself to. So, you know, I went back and I would argue, you know, in the months uh, following when the Senate campaign ended, probably had my most productive uh, stretch of time at City Hall. So I don't know. I mean, look, I'm I'm committed to public service for the long term. It's impossible to know exactly what that might look like. Um, you know, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee leaned on me very hard to run for the first congressional district. A dear friend of mine who is an amazing candidate, Aftab Purival, uh, is running that race now and I think likely to win, um, especially if the climate continues to be favorable. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be thoughtful sort of picking my spots while trying to make sure I'm building a good record along the way.
So after that race, after the praise that you received, you, like your sister, uh, the novelist Kurt, Curtis Sittenfeld, uh, went back to your version of reading Us Weekly and, and just being yourself. <laughs> yeah, grease, greasy hair, sweatpants. <laughs> I actually did. Seth will appreciate this. I feel like after you lose a race, I'd never lost one before. Um, I was like, you know what? Now's a great moment to grow a beard. And I did. <laughs> and Seth, it looked terrible, you know, and, it, and it, we now live in an era where I think I saw something that like, you know, shaving cream sales have plummeted because men just aren't shaving, you know, their Millennials beards. are killing the yeah, industry. Yeah, millennials are know? killing the industry. So I was like, you know what, let me try and be a cool, hip uh, millennial. <laughs> and I, I tried and it came through splotchy and it looked terrible. So you, you can't try, you just have to yeah, let it be. Exactly. So I, I <laughs> took a shower, shaved and got back to got, got back to work. <laughs> so obviously we are Clevelanders. Uh, you know, we are four hours away from Cincinnati. Can you fill us in on some of the major issues facing the city of Cincinnati right now? Yeah. And I think I have some sense, you know, I have friends on, on the city council in Cleveland. Um, so I try and keep up with everything that's happening here. And certainly I was paying close attention to that. I'm um, in the course of the Senate race too, but I think in almost any Metro at any given time across the country, uh, safety, crime and safety, uh, education and schools and job creation, those are always going to be the foundational issues in any metro. And I think it's not particularly different in the city of Cincinnati. You know, this is true of Ohio, um, but I think Cincinnati is pretty close to being ground zero, even nationally. The opioid uh, overdose epidemic uh, is rocking our community in an incredibly challenging way. Um, so that continues to be something that I'm putting a lot of focus on. And then actually, one other thing I would highlight is we have some incredible anchor corporations in Cincinnati, just as we do in Ohio. But the world is changing so fast. I mean, my joke that's not really a joke is, you know, if Jeff Bezos, depending on how Jeff Bezos feels when he wakes up in the morning, other Fortune 500 companies can rise and fall because of the disruption that's happening. So I also try and be a big time evangelist for how can we make sure that if you are a young, you don't have to be young, but often they skew young entrepreneur, you have the access to capital, the access to office space or co-working space, and the web and the network of business coaches and mentors and experts expertise so that if you're the next Dollar Shave Club or if you're the next Snapchat or a million examples that aren't brand names, you feel like I can bring that idea to life in Cincinnati, Ohio or Cleveland, Ohio. I don't have to move to Austin, Boston, Silicon Valley or someplace else. So I also try and really make sure that those ingredients that allow for our innovation ecosystem to thrive are in place too. So that's a lot of what, what I'm focused on. I'm interested in what you think coming from both the tech side and the political side. We've seen how Amazon and some of these big companies yeah. handle the bidding process. You know, um, a lot of people call it race to the bottom because cities give away, you know, yeah. whatever they can to get these companies. And a lot of it stems from, you know, tech companies coming in. So what do you make of the bidding process like that, both as a city councilman and someone who came from the tech side? Yeah, I um I might get myself in trouble with this answer. Um, I was involved in Cincinnati's bid for Amazon H2Q. And both substantively and politically, if the city of Cincinnati said, we're good, we're going to take a pass on the opportunity for the creation of 50,000 jobs, people would say that was dereliction of duty and, and sort of malfeasance. So you have to pursue it, right? But this is the part where I might get myself in trouble. It's not without a cost. And I think communities do need to be clear that, you know, giving away millions or in this case billions of dollars in subsidies to say you know hey come come to our city um, the implications around gentrification and housing crises and transportation systems
systems and things like that. These are very real considerations. So, you know, whoever ends up getting it, it's going to be a big win, but I'm not necessarily convinced it's going to be an entirely clean win. Um, so, I mean, you have to, it, there are tons of considerations around what smart development looks like, but I think, you know, I've always sort of been in the mindset that the more you're having to pay someone to stay in your city as a corporation in terms of the incentives and abatements you give them, the less good the fit actually is, right? Because you think about the things that attract a company. One, access to talent. Can you fill their workforce in the right way? Two, um, sort of access logistics, you know, moving goods, moving people, that sort of thing. Three and four intertwined quality of life and cost of living. The tax incentive piece should be fifth on that list. So it's like if you get the first four right or some combination of those four right, you're going to attract people whether you like it or not. So you look at uh, how Pittsburgh is able to thrive, the importance of Carnegie Mellon, and they're churning out technical talent and folks with STEM degrees. That is an unbelievable magnet that makes it puts a city like that in a position where they don't have to say, come to us because we'll give you so much money back. So it, it's a balancing act. So you mentioned violence and, uh, you know, you recently just move to banned bump stocks in Cincinnati. Yeah. And you said you, uh, frankly, I expect other ma major metropolitan areas in Ohio to follow us. Were you talking to Cleveland there? We're talking to everyone. Um, look, I think it's, uh, you know, it's smart policy. It's progressive policy. Does it is it going to single-handedly, um, you know, change the tide in this country when it comes to gun violence? No, but my attitude on that all along has been just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you can't do anything. And I actually think we have, you know, an obligation as policymakers in terms of public safety, but also, frankly, a moral obligation in terms of reversing the bloodshed in this country to if there is anything we can do that we must do that. And unfortunately, because we have an extreme state legislature that has basically preempted the ability of the Clevelands and the Cincinnati's and cities across Ohio to take action as a municipality when it comes to gun reform, this is one of the few things banning bump stocks that we can do. And I'll just be very clear with you. We witnessed one of the worst tragedies in American history in Las Vegas, where dozens and dozens of people were slaughtered and hundreds and hundreds more people were injured because somebody had this accessory to turn their semi-automatic weapon into an automatic weapon. If you told me that bump stocks being illegal in Cincinnati and cities like Cleveland and Columbus and Akron and Toledo and on and on follow suit prevented one single situation like what we saw in Las Vegas, it would have been more than worth it. So I'm proud to have sort of tried to lead the charge finding that legal pathway and that legal framework by which we can actually take this action. Do I wish we could do more? Hell yes. Do we need to do what we can? Absolutely. Surely you know you're going to face a legal challenge with it though, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the threat of lawsuit has never uh, been a deterrent for me from doing the right thing. That's a, not even a difficult choice. People, you know, those of us that are in city government, cities get sued for things all the time. That's why we have an able city solicitor's office and law department. Um, you know, if, if the threat of doing the right thing deterred people from do, doing it, we would never make uh, the threat of a lawsuit deterred people from doing the right thing. We would uh, struggle to make any progress. Are you surprised the gun issue has stuck around so much in, you know, with the Democratic base in the in recent weeks? I mean, we, we sort of seen, you know, these cycles off and on for I don't know how many years, but this time it seems like it's kind of there. Bluntly, I'm shocked that it doesn't consume people's conscience every single day at all times. Um, the notion, it, it's not normal for what happens in our country where somebody will go into a church and uh, murder people when someone goes into a movie theater and shoots down people when someone goes into a school with six and seven-year-olds, 
the notion that we would in any way adjust to that and come to think of, you know, this is a norm and this is like the price of modern society. Other countries do not live like this. And I refuse to in any way accept that we have to. So no, I think it's normal that people should be outraged every single day. And I saw a tweet recently that said, this is from the former um, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of, of New York. He said, I've been much more impressed lately with the children in this country than with the adults in this country. And I'm, I think what the young people from um, Marjorie Stone, Stoneman Douglas have done to galvanize this and to say, you're Second Amendment rights do not trump my rights to feel safe in my school. Your right to carry an assault weapon around does not trump my right to live. You know, it's insane to me that the adults needed the 16-year-olds to make that point, but I'm glad they have, and I do think that we will look back on this as a tipping point. There's always a little bit of a lag between changing hearts and minds and who is currently holding a seat, right? Because you might have a member of Congress who got in, uh, who's been there for 20 years, and they came in when the hearts and minds of the country were in a different place. And then they've kind of stayed in because of the, the value of incumbency. So I think it'll take a few years. But right now, there are a hell of a lot of 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds who feel fired up and have become activists over this issue. Guess what? They're about to be voters, and they're going to send a lot of people packing because of it. We've seen it become a pretty big issue in the gubernatorial primary between Richard Cordray and Dennis Kucinich. You know, uh, Dennis came out and said, hey, we won't need an assault weapons ban around the state. Cordray's actually been pretty cozy with the NRA over the years. You know, he had an A rating. I believe they endorsed him in 2010 over Mike DeWine, who had an F rating because I some sort of bizarro scenario there. I is he wrong on this issue? I've told Rich, um, who I'm incredibly admiring of the work he did with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and I think he has so much right about sort of uh, a platform of economic populism. I have told him very directly um, and very firmly. I do think he needs to evolve immediately on the gun issue. Um, yeah, he, he feels very differently about it than I do. And he's, he's kind of similar to Strickland in that way, who... You know, he got well, wallowed to, by to, Portman to, in 2016. I mean, is there... I mean, to, to, to give Governor Strickland credit, he, even though, you know, we tangoed over this at the time, he said, um, you know, I changed my mind after the tragedy and the atrocity at Newtown when, you know, more than 26 and 7-year-olds um, were slaughtered in, in their schooling place. So, um, look, I, I, again, I kind of feel concurrently, I'm admiring of so much of what Rich has accomplished and so much of his um, economic ideas. He's in a different place than I am on the gun issue, and I, I personally encourage him to change. Should Democrats be staking ground as a pro-gun Democrat in this kind of environment where you have a base that is fired up about this issue? I mean, we, you know, uh, Marianne Andrew talked with Mark Dan a couple weeks ago, and he said, he basically said, look, if there's a pro-gun Democrat and a pro-gun Republican in a race, they're going to support the pro-gun Republican. Exactly. Look, I mean, and I, <laughs> I think if the NRA, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm guessing here, but we can go and check. I, I would guess that Sherrod Brown, our great senator, a wonderful mentor to me. You know, I consider him a friend uh, and I'm very excited to do everything I can to support his reelection. I'm guessing he has an F rating from the NRA. And I think if they tried to upgrade him to a D plus, he'd call him up and say, whoa, 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 get me get me back to that F. So <laughs> this notion that you need to fear. I mean, the, the NRA is a commercial lobby, right? They're trying to make money for their members. They're not standing up for the little guy. And you see people in blue, purple and red areas all across the 
country who are able to be successful while also, you know, pushing back against the insanity from Wayne LaPierre and, you know, other NRA lobbyists. So no, I think you can absolutely be successful as a politician while being right and correct and on the right side of history on this gun issue. I mean, you have Rick Scott doing it down in Florida. And exactly. He's, he's a Republican. You even, even though, I mean, you know, Donald Trump is as slippery as a snake, just in the, you know, he'll be a diametrically opposed to this position he staked out the day before. But he's even even he, I don't give Donald Trump credit very often, has been willing to say, you don't have to be with the NRA. You can go your own direction. I mean, of course, he did a 180 the next day, but he at least was willing to say it for a moment in time. So yeah, Democrats should not be afraid of their own shadow on this issue. It's it's a big deal and it's going to get bigger. And there are a lot of 16 and 17 year olds, like I said, who are about to be voters. Don't piss them off. They're angry as they should be. I have a broader question about you as a progressive as it relates to the Democratic primary. You know, we had uh, three women running, you know, Nan Whaley, Mm -hmm. Connie Pillage, Betty Sutton, and Joe Schiavone, you know, also in there as well. And in a matter of weeks, it turned into Dennis Kucinich, Joe Schiavone, Bill O'Neill, and Richard Cordray. And I'm wondering, you know, does it seem odd that you know, a lot of those other candidates were younger. The only younger candidate we have, you know, that's that's in that race now is Joe Schiavone. Does it feel like some of those more progressive voices are getting pushed aside for some of those more well-known names? Yeah, I mean, all I can say is what I would tell people to do, which is if you believe in the reason for your candidacy, either because it's time for a new generation to carry the torch or because you're going to be the brave voice on um, gun safety or you've had an experience that no one else has, don't let anyone else muscle you around and tell you what to do. I mean, I'm a believer in democracy, and what's more democratic than creating a space where people can say, here's here are my ideas. Here's what my candidacy is all about. You know, look, I, I have three older sisters who we've talked about a little bit. They are my best friends. They're my role models. They're my heroes. They're amazing people. Um, I consider myself a strong feminist. So, you know, of course, I do wish that there were more, um, you know, females involved in this conversation. I certainly am trying supportive of trying to get more women to pursue elected office. Uh, you know, I do think there's always a case of, you know, the reverse might be – I think there also is sort of a strength of candidacy piece. So I think there are certain situations where um, a given person happened to be a man or happened to be a woman. And in, in one scenario, one might be an amazing fundraiser or the other might be an amazing fundraiser. But we can't necessarily ignore who's putting the pieces of a strong campaign together too. Have you endorsed in the governor's primary? Uh, I have. <laughs> I'm not necessarily looking to make news here because of you know my admiration for um, for Mr. Cordray. I did endorse him early on. I uh, I just assumed he was in a different place relative to the gun issue. So we've had again some frank conversations, and I guess are in the course of trying to resolve that. So what do you think Democrats need to do to win in 2018? Well, if you look at special elections all around the country, I mean, there is a freaking United States senator who's a Democrat from Alabama, of all places. We just saw um, Connor Lamb win a congressional seat that Donald Trump carried the district by 20 points. So, you know, I think it's to not let up, not take anything for granted. You know, I, I have frequent conversations with Senator Brown, and I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, Sherrod's popular, Sherrod's going to do great. But then you remind ourselves, Ohio had a wider market 
margin in 16 than I believe Georgia and Arizona. So my message to Democrats would be the wind might be at our back, but the second we are complacent or the second we take anything for granted, uh, it could be very problematic. So, you know, whether it is Senator Brown or Aftab Purival down in my neck of the woods, um, you know, make sure you are knocking on doors, chipping in with those grassroots donations, posting on social media. We're going to need it. And the other piece that we've seen, which is frightening at so many levels, is everything that allowed interference from hostile foreign nation states to disrupt the 2016 elections, I think they only feel emboldened. And here you have high-ranking people in the Trump administration saying, we've done very little to safeguard against that happening again. So, you know, I'm obviously, I'm praying and hoping that our elections will be secured. Um, But I want more than just, you know, hoping and wishing that that happens. I think there need to be very concrete steps on that front too. So like, I don't, I think we're just, we're living in um, incredibly tumultuous, totally politically bizarre times, which means don't take anything for granted ever. So when you look at the Democratic uh, statewide slate this year, your name is noticeably absent. People, people talked about you possibly making a run, you know, for statewide office this year. Why'd you decide to sit out? Um, I think a handful of reasons. You know, I was coming off my first loss and I wanted to get back to business in the city of Cincinnati. I, as you said, I got married a couple months later too. So I think I went from a situation where I had largely complete autonomy over my decisions to now, you know, my wife has a well-earned veto vote in all family decisions. Um, It just didn't necessarily feel like the right time. A number of people did encourage me to be part of the statewide ballot um, in, in sort of in one role or another. And I obviously appreciate that encouragement, but I, I got into this arena young enough that I feel like, you know, my heart will, I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but like, you know, my heart will lead me to the right race at the right time um, so that I'm in a position where I don't necessarily have to force it. Um, of course, I'm going to be doing and have been doing everything I can to be supportive of those who have stepped up to run this year. We have to win, especially since it's going to be an apportionment year, but um, I didn't feel like it was the right time in my, in my sort of n- non-political life. You know, I'm also, even though, as I said, I keep very busy, you know, a campaign ratchets it up that much more. And I am enjoying, you know, newlywed life and, and those sorts of things. This is completely unrelated, but like your wife is an oncologist. You're a very busy politician. Who takes care of the dog? <laughs> like... <laughs> The, the dog is... Um, self-sufficient? No, the dog's not because self-sufficient. I don't feel like I can get a dog. Like, I'm worried about it. So help me. She's So the answer is, it's, it's a good question. Now, I really am in the hot seat now. Um, so she gets, of discretionary time, which is limited, the dog gets like 97% of that time. And this is probably more than your listeners want to know. But I'm like, you know, Sarah, we used to sit on the couch and, you know, we'd snuggle and watch Netflix or whatever. Now, of course, the dog is sitting in between us as we're like coochie coochie cooing the dog. So um, yeah, the, the, the dog is sucking up all of the affection and energy there. Uh, we're, we're, she's very well taken care of. If anything, she's probably overly pampered. What kind of dog is it? She's a rescue dog. So we don't know 100%, but we think she is um, part Aussie Shepherd, part Cocker Spaniel. Oh, you her name is got Oak- a hyper one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's <laughs> very energetic. Her name is Oakley. She doesn't bark. Uh, we named her after the neighborhood where Sarah and I first met. Aww. And she's, she's, she's a wonderful dog yeah well you know when you're not you know playing with your dog you are raising a lot of money (laughs) i believe last year for the cincinnati uh, council race you raised a half a million dollars which is probably more than you needed to win um i believe you also got more votes than the mayoral candidates so you know what was what was raising all that cash about (laughs) 
Because you didn't need to. Um, I, I so I, I think I'm in um safe terrain here amongst other elected officials or candidates and saying if people say pg i believe in you i think you do a good job let me show you my support by writing you a check i don't think many people say no 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 (laughs) i insist you must not do that you say so look i mean a lot of i mean you know from from friends at princeton and oxford as well as people that have got you know seen me in action in the city of cincinnati maybe people who saw me in action in the course of the senate race folks you know i think when they invest in you of course it's for a particular race but i think they're also investing in what they think you can accomplish you know over the entire trajectory of your time in public service so you know again if they were offering i wasn't going to be in a position where i was declining um yeah is it more than you necessarily need to retain a seat uh, on the council yeah it probably was but you know i also like i said this is a bit of a recurrent theme not taking something for granted i think one of the reasons i'm uh, able to run effective races, including races that I've won and races when I haven't won, is you have to put yourself in the mindset. So I think last time, maybe 25 people ran for seats at City Hall in the city of Cincinnati. I mentally truly can make myself believe I am starting this race in 25th place. And you know, people will say that's ridiculous. You're probably the favorite in this. But mentally, I really am able to make myself feel and believe um, I'm coming from last. And if I don't do every single thing I can, I'll find myself, you know, out on the curb on election day. So that's kind of a glimpse inside my head on that stuff. You know, I know you mentioned uh, you've you've got some friends from school, from Princeton, from Oxford, who probably aren't from Ohio. One of the questions that we continually ask on this program is, does Ohio still matter in the national perspective? And then also trying to get a glimpse of what other people think of the state, you know, if they do politically. And I'm curious, you know, when you talk to your friends, obviously they're investing in you, they they know you, but perhaps they don't really know the state. And I'm curious, what do they make of the state of Ohio? It reminds me, I once saw a political cartoon and one word was written on every single state. So North Dakota said cold and Ohio written on it was important. Right. (laughs) And mostly that was because, you know, every year we've kind of been when they call Ohio in a presidential year, they say, and we are able to confirm that Barack Obama will be the president of the United States. You know, we've had those moments, even though the margin was hefty in Ohio in 2016, Ohio still kind of reflected what happened in the country. So I actually don't think it diminished our importance one bit. You know, we're also, look, we're a state of 11 and a half million people. We are the seventh biggest state in the country. We have so many, you know, important industries that are sort of centered here. We are a logistical corridor. I think if anything, Donald Trump's election has put more focused on the industrial Midwest. So I think that important moniker is still there. And I think that, you know, my friend's many of whom are living coastal existences, I think they're really intrigued by Ohio because they're like, if I can understand Ohio, I can really understand the country rather than, I mean, this is a character, but you know, sure. you know, sitting in DuPont Circle, sipping a $6 <laughs> latte at Starbucks sort of thing. And again, it's a car- not my caricature, but they're like, if we understand, there's, there's just like, there is a realness and a hardiness and a diversity to this state. Another insight from running for Senate, you know, to be in um, downtown Cleveland, and then to be, you know, in a rural part of Athens County and then down in the sort of southern part in my neck of the woods in Cincinnati. It really is all here in one uh, in one sort of state border. So you know, I think I think they're interested. And I think, yeah, they've appreciated it just following me along on Facebook being like, you know, kind of what's what's it like in a place we might not be as familiar with. But I don't I'm not counting on our importance um, diminishing anytime soon. One caveat I will add to that is I do want us to look like the nation. And we are a state that is is, you know, whiter, older, 
um, and um, sort of not gone as far in its educational attainment across the board as many of our other states. And, you know, I want us to be a diverse state. So if the country is booming because we're being welcoming of different immigrant communities, I want Ohio to embrace that too, not to try and stop it. You know, as the country needs to continue to skill up, I want to make sure that's something that's happening too. And I also, I want us to be a place where young people say, I don't just need to move to Denver to be someplace that's cool and fun. You know, I can move to Ohio and, you know, whether, again, not that every young person needs an Ohio City because different people have different flavors, but whether it's Ohio City in Cleveland or over the Rhine in Cincinnati, um, I think there's going to be more of a pattern of people saying rather than getting you know, paying insane rent uh, and trying to be in a stone's throw from San Francisco, I'm going to you know, forge coolness of my own in a place like, like Ohio. So I think PG, looking forward, has a lot of options um, available to him. I do not think he's going to stay on Cincinnati Council forever. Number one, he's term limited, I believe. Um, And number two, you know, he has a ton of cash in the bank and he's just sort of biding his time. And uh, I, I don't think his mind is made up about, you know, his next steps. I think Cincinnati mayor is an option. You know, when we asked him straight up what his uh, dream job was, he said U.S. Senate. So, you know, maybe he's waiting in the wings somewhere for an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he necessarily wins his next big race or anything like that, but there is a next big race. You know, that that's very I think that's very clear. I don't think anyone could disagree with that. The fact that he didn't run for um, that first congressional district down there was I thought a little surprising. I mean, they gave it to Aftab Purival, or I don't want to say they gave it to Aftab Purival decided to run, and PG decided he wasn't going to run. And I think those two are pretty, cl- you know, close because you know they work together and all that. Yeah, I mean, I think going forward, you you know, when you look at the Democratic Party, and you often say there's no bench there because they haven't elected anyone to anything like that. It's a really short list. I mean, it includes what your basically your PG Sittenfeld, Joe Schiavone, Aftab Purival, and Nan Whaley, Nan Whaley, and beyond that it starts to get a little fuzzy so uh cincinnati is what like a five and a half six hour drive from cleveland uh, how's a guy from southwest ohio four hours maybe I mean, google maps we can look it up later but uh how's a guy from southwest ohio you know break in when really northeast ohio is the most important democratic center of, of votes in the state he talked about how the major cities in ohio share some of the same problems and the, sh- the same sort of tropes i mean certainly they're combating a gun violence problem in cincinnati and and you know we have the same same problems up here obviously the opioid crisis is a big problem everywhere i also think pg just is so personable and he can connect with people very easily he's such a natural politician who is I think he'll be able to you know attract donors in the Cleveland area and attract attention in the Cleveland area or you know across the state I think certainly his appeal is more defined in sort of the metro areas I think you know he is not from rural Ohio and I think you know he needs to spend some time getting to know those folks and and trying to connect with them because that's not necessarily his home home team. Also, I mean, he he does have some name ID because his sister is a very famous novelist who I really love and she's great. And I had a really hard time not talking about Curtis Sittenfeld for the whole interview. But PG is interesting in his own right and important figure in Ohio politics in his own right, if only because, you know, in the next decade, he could be a 
pretty big player here. As long as the whole Skyline Chili thing doesn't doesn't derail him. Yeah, he, he did say he was a Skyline guy. So we, uh, we we did talk with him about why he thinks that. I, I personally think it's spaghetti. I'm going to anger everyone here. I think it's spaghetti with chili, but that's just me. Anyway. He clearly loves Skyline Chili. Like, if anything that we can take away from, this take away from this interview is that P.G. Sittenfeld authentically loves Skyline Chili and would sell anybody on it. Like when we asked him about it, he was like, wait, 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 guys, let me tell you how to do it. Like he, he loves it. With that, let's get back to more of the interview with PG Sittenfeld. So I have to ask you, you know, there's been talk about you running for Cincinnati mayor in 2021. Um, if you want to make news here, feel free. <laughs> but where do you see your future? The There has been talk of that. I mean, I think it was probably unavoidable, not because of anything I've done. But if you're the top vote getter in the city, multiple elections in a row, if you're getting more votes than the mayor, if you're an effective fundraiser, and if you're getting a lot done in terms of, you know, tangible accomplishments at City Hall, it's not some huge extrapolation for people to think, oh, this guy would be a good mayor or he's probably going to pursue that. Um, I have absolutely not made any final decision. And people that know me, when I have made a determination to pursue a given thing, I'm not shy about it. I'm not a shrinking violet or whatever the expression is. So um, would I love to pursue that path? Absolutely. Are there other things in public service that, you know, I would also be open to considering. Yeah, so no decision has been made. I'm still at a point in my life, and this is, you know, I don't know how, this is definitely the news I'm making is not that my wife is pregnant here, but- oh, congratulations. Can, no, 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 it's not. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm just, not just kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm, we're not announcing that, but <laughs> was say, that, that children will be part of the equation. Sure. And, so, and, and, you know, that changes a person's perspective in a million ways, too. So um, my, my wife will be horrified by this portion of the podcast, but- <laughs> Sorry. So, so it's- <laughs> there, there are some unknowns in the future, um, but what I will say is I'm committed to public service for the long haul. Um, and I think, you know, when somebody from Northeast Ohio who wrote me a check in support of my Cincinnati City Council race, I think they, they did it because they want me to stay in this arena and they think that voices like mine um, are important to stay in the political arena. So I don't know. Would I love to be the mayor of the city of Cincinnati? Yes. Are there other things I might um, be willing to consider? Sure. What would that be? Again, I don't I mean, would I have thought that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee would be I mean, there was a period last summer when a member of Congress was literally calling my phone every single day saying get into this race. I wouldn't have foreseen that situation. And, you know, you try and have open ears. So and you know, look, I've run statewide once. Um, I think I have something to offer statewide. But so I just I'm not trying to say like I'm scattered in a million different directions. I'm just saying, you know, uh, I haven't made any determination yet, but I think there are things that I would personally feel very rewarded by uh, on the horizon, and um, I'll let you know when I make that decision. I'll come back in the podcast. Let me let me ask it this way: If you could hold one political office, what would it be? Ever? Like it would be the last one I would hold? Look, I mean this this won't come as a huge secret. I, I it wasn't like I threw a dart at a number of political offices and it happened to hit United States Senate, right? Like, I think that job where you are one of a hundred, where you can disproportionately shape the national conversation, where you have a huge voice, not just in domestic affairs, but also in foreign policy. I mean, I think it's, and a six-year term, it doesn't sound like the worst thing either, um, just because you're a little bit freed from some of the rigors of campaigning. You're confirming or rejecting Supreme Court nominees. I just think, look, the... 
every politician, there's it's some balance of impact and ego, right? And you just hope that it's the right ratio. I know I'm in this for the right reasons to make an impact. And if that is what's motivating you, who wouldn't want to be in the seat where they can make the biggest possible impact? So look, I think being a United States Senator would be a great job. I think being the mayor of my hometown would be an incredible job. There are a lot of uh, places where you can do great things in the political arena. I hope I hope I can land uh, in one of them after I complete my service in my current seat. So I, I want to end with this. So I grew up in Texas, right? And Chile is hook'em horns. Hook'em, hook'em, right? And Chile is a, a huge part of our culture. And so when I moved to what you all call Chile, well, what you all call Chile. So I have to ask. You know, I've never tried Cincinnati chili. I need to rectify you haven't that. Lived yet. It's okay. <laughs> What's the deal with Cincinnati chili? Why do people love it so much? Well, so let me just describe it for your listeners. It is um, spaghetti, um, long spaghetti noodles, very wet. Then the chili, unlike your Texas chili, which is sort of hearty with meat and chunks of vegetable and beans, this is a very soupy, thin chili, the secret sauce of which is chocolate and cinnamon. You can't actually taste it, but it does impact the overall flavor. And then the third thing you put on it is a heaping mound of golden cheddar cheese. That's called a three-way in Cincinnati. If you add beans or onions, it's then a four-way. And if you add both, it becomes a five-way. Often, usually, you then take uh, oyster crackers, crunch them on top, and a little bit of hot sauce. You can tell I'm passionate about this. <laughs> so people who, like me, grew up in the city of Cincinnati, I mean, it is mother's milk. This is the stuff that you were weaned on, obsessed with, can't get enough of. I eat it at least once a week. I bond with my constituents over it. People who aren't from Cincinnati, their stomachs tend to have a very different interpretation of our Cincinnati chili. So um, I was very proud, and I knew our marriage was going to work when my wife once suggested, hey, maybe we go to Skyline for dinner tonight because she's not a native Cincinnati. And I was like, this relationship is going to work after all. You know? <laughs> so I, I, have to, I have tried Cincinnati chili because my brother lives standing, down there. You're still standing, Seth. You look <laughs> fine. And, and, you know, I have to ask, why is it chili and not spaghetti? Because it has a spaghetti base, it would seem to me. It seems like it's spaghetti I, I can't speak to songs. the nomenclature. I can only speak to the deliciousness. Yeah. Go, gold star or Skyline? Skyline, 100%. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, PG. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great. We covered a lot of ground.